0: Welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay. And today I wanted to talk to you guys about Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd. I think he's kind of been a person that I've known about for a really long time and I always thought he was really fascinating because he seemingly came out of nowhere and then he left the music scene for probably most of his life. However, he is extremely well known for being the original frontman, singer, songwriter for Pink Floyd, but he is a very troubled person. You know, I want to dive deep into him and his story and why he was the way that he was, like what made him so detached from reality. So without further ado, let's get started into the backstory of who Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd was. So he was born Roger Keith Barrett on january 6 1946 in cambridge london to a middle-class family and he was the fourth of five children sid played piano occasionally but usually preferred writing and drawing he bought a ukulele age 10 a banjo at 11 and a hofner acoustic guitar at 14. a year later he bought his first electric guitar and he ended up building his own amplifier which shows how incredibly smart he was to build his own amplifier at only 15. According to one story, there's multiple accounts as to how he came up with this name, Sid, in the first place, because he was born Roger. So one story goes, at the age of 14, he got his nickname Sid after an old Cambridge jazz bassist who was named Sid the Beat Barrett so another story is when sid was around 13. he was a scout his friends and scout camp named him Sid after he came to a field day at abington scout site wearing a flat cap instead of his scout beret because sid was apparently a working class kind of name him wearing a flat cap was a working class cap so his friends like made fun of him for it and like a in a jokey kind of way those are the two stories that i've found So, tragedy would strike the Barrett family when, on December 11th, 1961, his father ended up dying of cancer, less than a month before Sid's 16th birthday. So, his family saw this change in Sid, apparently in his diary, he would write often in his diary, apparently on this day, December 11th, 1961, he wrote nothing in his diary, and his family saw him kind of become depressed so his mother was eager to help him recover from this grief and he was in a little band at the time called jeff mott and the mottos and she encouraged him to play and practice his band in their front room to kind of you know get him out of his funk so she encouraged his music sensibilities he was actually really good friends with roger waters and this is where the beginnings of pink floyd were to come about here at one point At Morley Memorial Junior School, Sid was taught by Roger's mother, who was a teacher. Wow, what an interesting connection. But the two of them, Roger and Sid, they were very close friends growing up. They lived in the same roundabout neighborhood, so they were very close. Later in 1957, Sid would attend Cambridgeshire High School for Boys with Roger, actually. And because they were such close friends, Roger would attend some of these shows that Sid would put on with his band in his front room. In September 1962, Sid had taken a place at the art department of the Cambridgeshire College of Arts and Technology where he would meet David Gilmore. In late 1962, the Beatles made a massive impression on Sid. So this is now where he is already deep into music, but now we have the Beatles in 1962 where they were extremely popular at this time because this is when they started releasing their music. So he began to play Beatles songs at parties and at picnics. And then in the following year, he actually became a massive Rolling Stones fan, and he saw them perform at a village hall in Cambridgeshire. He would cite Jimmy Reed as his main influence. However, he remarked that Bo Diddley was his greatest influence. So he was thinking about his future. I mean, he thought at first that maybe he didn't have a specific... Career with music. He really enjoyed going to art school and taking art classes and being a painter. So he thought he would apply for the Camberwell College of Arts in London. And he enrolled in the college in the summer of 1964 to study painting. So he was always a very talented artist and painter, and he would continue on his painting hobby until um, his last breath. So he really enjoyed that a lot. Starting in 1964, the band that would end up becoming Pink Floyd, they evolved through various lineup and name changes over the years, including the names Abdabs, which I didn't know what the hell Abdabs was. So I took a look, and apparently, Abdabs is an English slang term that means extreme nervousness or anxiety. So one of the name changes to the band, they called themselves at one point Abdabs. They called themselves the Screaming Abdabs. They called themselves Sigma Six. And at one point, You can't make this up. At one point, they called themselves the Megadeths. I don't know how they came up with Megadeths back in the 60s. Dave Mustaine came up with it later. I I just think that's really interesting there. They went through various name changes before Sid came up with the name Pink Floyd. In 1965, they went into a studio for the first time when a friend of Richard Wright's gave the band free time to record. So this is where now they're starting to think of music and material for their debut album just to kind of get some stuff ready for an album they don't have any kind of record deal yet they don't have a management team yet at this point in time they began by playing cover versions of american rock and roll songs and r&b songs and by 1966 they had carved out their own style of improvised rock and roll which drew as much from improvised jazz as humanly possible because i think they all had a very interesting taste For jazz and i think we all know that they're psychedelic rock but at this point in the game not a lot of them experimented with popular drugs recreational drugs at the time like ecstasy or acid or lsd except for sid sid seemed to be the one that was most drawn to lsd and during the summer of 1965 he had his first lsd trip with some friends in a friend's garden And apparently this just blew his mind. I think you can have either a good experience with LSD or a massively bad experience with LSD. For example, the first time that the Beatles took LSD was a horrible experience because they were drugged. It was George and Patty Boyd and John and Cynthia Powell, but they were at some party with their dentist and their dentist slipped LSD into their drinks. And so they were having a really bad time. I remember that. And I remember Paul would vehemently not take LSD for a long period of time because he was afraid of like what would happen. You know, you can have a bad experience and get very addicted to it. and seemingly enough, Sid had a very good positive experience to it. And this is kind of where unfortunately, this would take a hold of him and kind of alter his personality as drugs and recreational psychedelic type hallucinogenic drugs can do. they can alter your brain chemistry. They can make you think differently. They can make you see the world differently. And so Sid was becoming a lot more in tune with like everything around him and with his thoughts and his mind and who he was as a person. And I think it just became quite overwhelming for him. But by the end of 1966, Pink Floyd created their management team with Andrew King and Peter Jenner. Peter and Andrew wanted to prepare some demo recordings for a possible record deal with any record company that was out there at the time. So at the end of October, they booked a session at Thompson Private Recording Studio in Hemel Hampstead. And this is where they would finally record some stuff that would end up being on their debut album called The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. And it was produced by former Beatles engineer Norman Smith. So they have the backing of a Beatles engineer on their debut album to help them out, which a lot of people can't say that they have that luxury on their debut album. So Pink Floyd was already set up for success. March 11th, 1966, they released their first single called Arnold Lane. And then the album, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, released that August. And by the time that the album released, the single Arnold Lane went to number 20 on the British singles charts. The follow-up single, which would become massively popular, See Emily Play, had peaked at number 5. And the album was very successful in the UK, hitting at number six on the British album charts. Of the 11 songs on the album, Sid wrote eight and he co-wrote another two. So he wrote most of that album. See Emily Play was a song that he wrote, which I love. That bike song, which is a song that I love he wrote. So he's, he's really showing us that he is a magnificent writer and storyteller there aren't a lot of people like him that just take something out of thin air, seemingly enough, and just make it sound like a masterpiece. Unfortunately, though, this is kind of where the band would start to see a massive shift in Sid's behavior because his LSD usage was becoming very erratic and it was increasing tenfold. So through 67 and 68, he became a vastly different person. People noticed that he was once joyful, friendly, talkative, extroverted, he slowly became increasingly depressed, withdrawn, he experienced weird hallucinations, he had disorganized speech wherein he couldn't string proper sentences together, He had memory lapses, intense mood swings, and periods of catanoia. So basically catanoia, from my understanding, is you just sitting, staring blankly out into space, not moving, not doing literally anything, just almost as if you're paralyzed, pretty much. So he would have all of these things and much more. People close to Sid in his life and fans have speculated that Sid was also schizophrenic and that he also had... Perhaps an undiagnosed underlying depression before he took LSD, and that when he took LSD, it exacerbated all of these underlying conditions and problems. That could be true. Um, Unfortunately, we aren't sure 100% if he did have it or not. I think it's just kind of a well known belief between all of the fans and everybody that he did have schizophrenia. So I just wanted to throw that out there. When you overuse and abuse, hallucinogenics and psychedelics and mood-altering, mind-altering drugs like LSD, your brain chemistry does start to definitely change and alter. And unfortunately, the more you take drugs like this, the more that your brain becomes changed and permanently. So unfortunately, this is kind of what would befall Sid. The longer that Sid used LSD, he started to develop this typical blank dead-eyed stare that would kind of become his signature look over time and he kind of kept that look throughout all of his life honestly he didn't recognize his friends and often did not know where he was apparently while pink Floyd was recording their single see emily play when they were doing the debut album david gilmore stopped by on his return visit from europe to say hello to sid and according to david he quote just looked straight through me, barely acknowledged me that I was there, end quote. It's already starting as their debut album already got underway. So he was really doing it a lot. And apparently, also according to what I heard from Roger and a couple of other members, you know, Sid was living in this, you know, little dinky kind of flat. um, And he would have friends over that necessarily weren't the best kind of friends that were Looking out for his best interest, whenever they go to visit Sid in his flat in London, they would note that the place was like a pigsty. It was disgusting. It was gross. He was kind of already really down in the dumps very fast. I mean, this didn't happen that long ago. Considering that he started taking LSD in 1965... And the debut album release in 1966, and he was already developing this blank dead stare by this time that they were recording their debut album, really shows me that his usage was quite a lot. I don't know how many tabs of LSD he was taking or doing, but he clearly was, I would probably safely say, abusing LSD. He was one of the victims of LSD that was hooked on it, and he couldn't stop doing it. So I think, you know, Sid wanted that transcendental kind of experience, and I think the more he used it, the more he kind of got, you know, sucked into living in that altered state of reality versus then living in reality. Music producer Joe Boyd saw Pink Floyd at the famous UFO Club in mid-1967, and in his memoir, he expressed a very strange encounter that he had with Sid, and I'll read that to you. He said, I had exchanged pleasantries with the first three when Sid emerged from the crush. His sparkling eyes had always been his most attractive feature, but that night they were vacant, as if someone had reached inside his head and turned off a switch. During their set, he hardly sang, standing motionless for long passages, arms by his sides, staring into space. And this would kind of be the overarching theme of how he would definitely perform live. So, They had their debut album, and they were touring America. So Roger explained the story of when they were in Los Angeles for the first time. They were just kind of in this car, like, looking around, taking in the sights. And Roger said that uh, Sid turned to him, and he's like, "'Gee, it sure is nice to be in Las Vegas.'" So Roger just was explaining that Sid had no idea where he was any of the time. He also would forget his instruments all the time. He would never play. And that's the thing where I think because he developed this like standing pose of just standing and mumbling or not, singing his songs on stage and staring off into space with this dead, glassed-over look in his eye. But he probably felt more himself when he was living in the altered experience that LSD gave him. But seemingly enough, he was on it all the time. Sid exhibited similar behavior during the band's first appearance on American Bandstand. Surviving footage of this appearance shows Sid miming his parts completely. And during this time, Sid would often forget to bring his guitar to sessions, he would damage equipment and he was unable to hold his guitar pick so he literally was almost catatonic all the time not just some of the time but he was very much so lapsing into not even being able to control his motor functions now because now he can't even hold anything he can't even hold his little tiny guitar pick in his hands anymore so during a performance in 1967 Sid Barrett, before this show, apparently crushed Mandrax tranquilizer tablets and a tube of barrel cream in his hair. So barrel cream, from my understanding, is like a men's hair gel type of situation. And Mandrax tranquilizer tablets are essentially quaaludes, if I'm not mistaken. So he would crush these quaaludes, he mixed them with some hair gel, he put it in his hair maybe he thought oh maybe this will seep into my scalp and i'll get high that way directly i don't know what he was thinking clearly he was not thinking coherently at all all of this goop melted down his face under the heat of the stage lights making him look like a candle apparently to everybody so he just was not doing okay that's to say it in the most nice way possible Roger Waters had this to say when he looked back on it. He said, when he was still in the band in the later stages, we got to the point where any one of us was likely to tear his throat out at any minute because he was so impossible. When Emily was a hit and we were third for three weeks, we did Top of the Pops. And the third week we did it, he didn't want to know. He got down there in an incredible state and said he wasn't going to do it. We finally discovered the reason was that John Lennon didn't have to do Top of the Pop, so he didn't. Around Christmas time this year, Pink Floyd asked David Gilmour to join officially as a second guitarist to cover for Sid because Sid couldn't do literally anything. And the other members at this time in the game grew really tired of Sid's cumbersome behavior to the point where they literally ghosted him. They felt so much guilt and burden for them having to fire Sid from the band, that they just kind of let him fall to the wayside and kind of just let him slowly come to the realization of these people don't want me in Pink Floyd anymore. So the turning point happened. January 26, 1968. The band decided to not pick up Sid when Roger Waters was driving the band on the way to a show at Southampton University. So basically they were like, yeah, let's not invite Sid and let's bring on David Gilmour as his replacement. It was a really tight pickle that they were in because they were sick and tired of Sid's erratic behavior but they couldn't just let him go because one they felt very guilty but two he had written most of the band's material so their plan was let's just keep him as a non-touring member of the band similarly to what the beach boys did with brian wilson and just you know have him in the band as part of the band but let's not have him perform live anymore And again, Pink Floyd didn't tell Sid that he was no longer part of the band due to their guilt, so they just let him fall to the wayside. They let him put the pieces together. He was already in this altered state of reality, and so he probably got even more paranoid. And this is backed up by the fact that, you know, Sid was starting to become aware of the fact that the band didn't want him anymore, so Sid would spend time outside the recording studio, in the reception area, waiting to be invited into the studio all the time. He also came to a few performances, and he was in the audience glaring directly at David Gilmore, his replacement, and just staring at him. So he was becoming very paranoid and kind of scary because he literally would show up to the recording studio and sit there. No one could tell him to leave because I think they were too afraid because Sid, I think, had a bit of a sensitive disposition, so I think they were scared to say something to him. But on April the 6th, 1968, Pink Floyd officially announced that Sid was no longer a member. And this happened on the same day that their contract with Black Hill Enterprises was terminated. So now they could start a new contract with David Gilmour and, you know, they could move forward now and they could officially let go of Sid Barrett. And Sid wasn't really, as you can imagine, the happiest with this decision because, you know, he had written most of their debut album, which was a massively successful hit. After leaving Pink Floyd, or after being fired from Pink Floyd, Sid was out of the public eye for a year. But in 1969, he released two solo albums, The Madcap Laughs and Barrett. He did his best to create some solo music at the behest of his record label and other studio executives trying to get him back in the public eye to keep doing music they thought it would be good for him but he just wasn't really having it anymore when he was finally free from his contract with EMI on May 9th 1972 he signed a document that ended his association with Pink Floyd and any financial interest in future recordings so he was done completely by 1972 so he was officially cut at that point so he was now kind of you know two solo albums out with one album from Pink Floyd out at this point i think floyd is continuing to get bigger and bigger and bigger releasing all these amazing fantastic albums and sid's falling to the wayside getting deeper in his schizophrenic behavior his depression and his other ideations with his lsd usage and by the end of 1973 sid had returned to live in london staying at various hotels in london and he had little contact with anybody apart from regular visits to his manager's office to collect his royalty checks and the occasional visit from his sister Rosemary. Aside from that, nobody really saw him anymore. Nobody really wanted to see him anymore, and he didn't want to see anyone else either. During this period of time, several attempts to employ him as a record producer for various other projects pretty much failed. He just didn't want anything to do with the music industry anymore. And he did not want to talk about his time in Pink Floyd either. The public has not seen Sid Barrett since the late 60s, but it had been a couple of years now. The 70s had not been the best to him. And this is where we get very famous photographs of Sid Later on, in 1975, when Sid, up and out of nowhere, visits Pink Floyd during their recording sessions for their album, Wish You Were Here. He attended the Abbey Road session unannounced and watched the band working on the final mix of Shine On You Crazy Diamond, which is a song about him. So at this point in time, Sid was 29 years old, and unfortunately, he kind of looked a lot older. So there are photographs of him at this specific event where he went to see Pink Floyd in the studio while they were doing Shine On You Crazy Diamond. And it's amazing that someone even got photographs of him. Definitely did not look like himself. He was overweight. He had shaved off all of his hair, including his eyebrows. And Pink Floyd didn't even initially recognize him at first. Said was, you know, considered a really attractive looking guy back in the day. He had really nice, long, dark hair and these striking eyes. But then, like, to see him, you know, let go of himself physically and shave off all of his hair and his eyebrows... And he still had that blank stare in his eye. Like, he just looked so detached from reality. And apparently, he spent most of the recording session brushing his teeth as he was just listening to them. So really odd. When they were finished with Shine On You Crazy Diamond, Roger asked him what he thought of the song, and Sid said that it was old. He said that it sounds a bit old. Listen to those lyrics and really understand that they're really trying to say to Sid that you had all of these amazing things going for you and you can still get back there to who you were in your prime. You just gotta take control back of your life. Quite upsetting, but uh, you know, after that point, that was the last time that a lot of them saw him ever again. Sid used to fill his days by this weird obsession he had. He would purchase and then throw out expensive items that he purchased from Harrods. So Harrods is kind of like a really fancy, upscale department store in the uk very expensive i don't know what it would be compared to in the us maybe like a neiman marcus type situation but something like that only kind of really wealthy people can shop there when he was living in this little subsection in london called the chelsea cloisters it was essentially kind of like a hotel apartment situation not that great The caretaker of the Chelsea Cloisters, Ronnie Salmon, he said that Sid used to get tired of the things that he purchased, and he would say, the stuff he used to throw away was unbelievable. One day from Harrods, they delivered a television. It was worth about 800 pounds. He had it for two days and then called me up and said, Ronnie, can you take this away? I said, what do you want me to do with it, Sid? He said, take it, keep it. I had a guitar off him, two Marshall amplifiers, the other porters got a bit jealous because he was giving me so much stuff. That's just kind of what he would do. So it almost became like this obsessive kind of compulsion to just buy a bunch of shit that he didn't need. And then he got tired of it. And he's like, ah, throw it away. Like, I really don't understand that compulsion. But it obviously was not something that someone in their right state of mind would do. But just looking at it from a psychological perspective, maybe he was just trying to fill a void in his life by buying expensive stuff. Maybe that's kind of what it was, but I'm not sure. Roger Waters actually one day saw Sid in Harrods. And when they caught each other's eye, according to Roger, Sid ran away dropping his bags. Roger said that his bags were filled with candy. And this was the last time that any member of Pink Floyd saw Sid. That's not really a way that I think his band members wanted to remember him by like that. And it's just very unfortunate. He kind of like, you know, fell apart at the seams like this eventually of course him buying all these very expensive things the money that he had by 1978 ran out and so he had no other option but to move back to cambridge and live with his mother he returned to live in london for a few weeks in 1982 again he had no money so he then returned back to live at home with his mom in cambridge so at this point he walked 50 miles to his mother's house from where he lived in london Seeing photos of him much, much later after the photos of him at 29, he looks definitely a lot sicker and older than he was, and that's because he was dealing with some ailments here. So according to the biographer and journalist Tim Willis, Sig continued to live in his mother's semi-detached house, and he returned to painting, creating large abstract canvases. But at the same time, I heard a story that the more he painted at his mother's house, the more he kind of just never really liked it again. So he also was an avid gardener. So he just tried his best to like keep his mind occupied by doing other stuff. And he became quite the recluse. And his physical health declined because he was literally confined to his house. And he was not willing to let anyone visit him or talk to him. Interviewers tried over the years to talk to him. And there were only, I believe, two instances since this time period of when he left Pink Floyd or when he was fired to when he passed. And there weren't that many recorded interviews. And the interviews that we do have that I read, I read them. They're very disjointed. Like they're trying to ask him questions of how he's doing and what he's up to. And he's giving these really weird, like esoteric type of strange answers that don't make sense, you know? So Even if people wanted to talk to him, he's just not in his right frame of mind. And so his mind was rotting, literally. He developed stomach ulcers and type 2 diabetes at this point in time. So, of course, now he had no one to really depend on him to help him out except, you know, his mother that, you know, would try to help him as best she could before she ended up passing. His sister Rosemary would occasionally try to see him. There is nothing that I've heard about his other siblings going to see him. But it sounds like his sister rosemary was kind of the one to kind of like say i'm going to take care of my brother as best i can so at least she did that and she lived nearby so that was okay so you know it kind of came to a point now where he was living by himself in his mother's house and um, his health had deteriorated to the point where he developed pancreatic cancer and at the age of 60 he died due to his cancer on July 7th, 2006, on Ringo Starr's birthday, actually. Uh, He was cremated at a funeral held in the Cambridge Crematorium on July 18th, 2006. No Pink Floyd members attended. It is what it is. I'm sure they maybe didn't want to draw attention. You know, I can understand that. You know, whatever reason they didn't want to attend is their own reason. But Richard Wright of Pink Floyd said, the band are very naturally upset and sad to hear of Sid Barrett's death. Sid was the guiding light of the early band lineup and leaves a legacy which continues to inspire. David Gilmore said, Do find time to play some of Sid's songs and to remember him as the madcap genius who made us all smile with his wonderfully eccentric songs about bikes, gnomes, and scarecrows. His career was painfully short, yet he touched more people than he could ever know. He also would go on to say, Sid was one of the great rock and roll tragedies. He was one of the most talented people and could have given a fantastic amount. He really could write songs and if he had stayed right, could have beaten Ray Davies at his own game. Roger Waters said this in 1975 about Sid, while Sid was still alive, but he said this anyway. I'm very sad about Sid, though I wasn't for years. For years, I suppose he was a threat because of all that bollocks written about him and us. Of course, he was very important and the band would never have fucking started without him because he was writing all the material. It couldn't have happened without him. But on the other hand, it couldn't have gone on with him. So they were very devastated by Sid's death. And according to local newspapers at the time, Sid left approximately 1.7 million pounds to his four siblings, which was largely due in part to the royalties he received from Pink Floyd compilations and live recordings featuring any of Sid's material. So anything from the first album, essentially. So $1.7 I would have imagined that it was more, but at the same time, he only had that one album, really. So I I suppose that makes sense there. That is kind of the end of Sid Barrett's story. And I do remember hearing as well that up until his death, he kept receiving royalties from Pink Floyd. David Gilmour made sure that the money that he should get was owed to him. So, thankfully, to Pink Floyd and David Gilmore, Sid even got money anyway due to the royalties that he was rightfully owed. Probably wouldn't have even had anything to give his four siblings had he not had these royalties anyway. So, you know, Pink Floyd loves Sid like a brother, like a friend, um, like a family member. And this is the effects that drugs can do to your loved ones. And I'm not trying to get on a soapbox. Um, Because Sid, seemingly enough, you know, due to, you know, his rumored schizophrenia and rumored depression prior to him getting on these kind of drugs, and this was of the time in the 60s where these kind of drugs were very common and rampant, he was just one of the many millions of people that took to taking these kinds of hallucinogenic drugs and he found some kind of comfort, some kind of solace in them, some kind of dependency on them. Unfortunately, though, it altered the chemistry of his brain entirely to the point where he was a totally different person. And even when he at some point eventually, because one has to stop eventually, stopped taking these drugs, he was forever a changed person. So even just taking it one time could totally change your life forever, change your brain forever. Um, but Sid, you know, would habitually keep using and using and using, and again, like a lot of other people and musicians of this time, you know, they abused drugs like this, but unfortunately you know, Sid could never really get off the drugs. And it makes me wonder what Pink Floyd would have looked like if Sid had joined the band. You know, would they have still come out with these amazing albums, that kind of material with Sid there? Or, you know, with Roger Waters then stepping up to the plate to then be the songwriter for Pink Floyd after Sid was thrown to the wayside. I just kind of wonder how different Pink Floyd would look or if they would still be the same roger waters is a very amazing songwriter as well but sid just had that quite poetic like english sensibility about his writing style that's very unique and very different so i think people like that come once in a lifetime and i think some people are just born with that kind of gift and unfortunately i think sid kind of squandered that gift but at the same time you know after he was fired from pink floyd he never wanted to talk about them anymore Occasionally over the years when Pink Floyd would be brought up to him or when he would like listen to some old songs like see Emily play, he would get happy, but on the grander side of this, you know, mostly he was very apathetic to Pink Floyd and he probably was very unhappy with how it ended between them, which makes sense. I get that because they didn't directly say, hey, Sid, you're fired. They just kind of let him figure it out on his own. But. You know, I get that. You know, when you have someone that's a bit eccentric like Sid and he's going through this weird change in his personality, you don't know what could happen if you approach them directly. So I think Sid was just kind of left to wonder, which is not fair either. But I understand why they went about it that way. But I agree with what David Gilmore said, you know. Definitely listen to the first album that Pink Floyd has called... The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, listen to that for sure, because that is the mark that Sid Barrett left upon the world. That's the impression he left upon us. You can definitely hear the eccentricness and the fantastic lyrical prowess that Sid Barrett had within him. If you not only listen to that album, but if you take a listen to a couple of the other albums that he created, the two solo ones he did, So there's a song by Sid Barrett that I've loved for a long time. It's a short song called Golden Hair that I really enjoy. It's on his album, The Madcap Laughs. It's a really, really good one. See what you like, see what you think about it, and enjoy the music that Sid Barrett gave to us because without him, Pink Floyd would have looked a lot different and would have been a lot different with him, without him, and all the ways Um, So thank you again for listening. I hope that you guys enjoyed and that you learned something today that you hadn't known about before. I'll see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, guys.